Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. That's where we'll begin this morning. It's so good to see you. Thank you for making time to be here today. So, so grateful. It's been said by theologians that God made the first garden, but rebellious man made the first city. And they've been at odds ever since. Cities say a great deal about the power, the possessions, the prestige, and the personality of the people who build them and occupy them. King David made sure that Jerusalem was staked out as the closest thing to a holy city here on earth. The rhythms of the day brought glory to God. The buildings in the city were constructed in a way that put the attention on the Lord. The commerce of the city with their Sabbath rest and the year of Jubilee put the focus on God. Jerusalem was called the city of God here on earth. In case you're joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. We are past that idealistic city built by David and Solomon's contribution. And we're now in Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the Persian king. He had been taken captive by the Babylonians who had essentially raided and destroyed the holy city. War torn, the wall was down, the temple had been destroyed, and there were no people there. And, and so Ezra had gone back and others had gone back and were making some progress. But Nehemiah found out about how bad it was from his brothers and he sends uh, he goes back and begins to rebuild the wall. That's, that's um, a little lesson because Nehemiah prayed while he was in Susa, the citadel of Persia. When he found out about the problem, he hit his knees, he fasted and prayed and spent time before the Lord, and God answered his prayer. Spoiler alert, be careful what you pray for, you might be the answer to the prayer. Like he was like, God, you got to help him, you got to help him, you got to help him, and God's like, awesome, Go. And he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, he went willingly. He waited for the opportunity, approached the king, and the king sent him with his blessing. I want you, though, to picture something in your mind that we've not done yet in this series. I want you to think about Persia. Persia is the leading empire of the world at the time. Not only was the, the citadel spectacular and the palace probably something that would take your breath away, everything that mattered happened there. It was the capital of capitals. There were people everywhere buying and selling and building and building one another up in community and paying taxes and enjoying life and engaging in the arts in the city. But God called and sent Nehemiah from that prestigious, powerful city to broken down Jerusalem. He left one of the most impressive places in the ancient world for Jerusalem, a broken down city that didn't even have walls. When he gets there, the debris is so thick he can't even pass as he's trying to inspect the wall. It's bad. If you get a chance to go back and read the summary, you remember in, in 1 through 6, Nehemiah's rebuilding the wall. In 7, it talks about the people that helped. And in 8, they get the Bible out, this Torah, and begin to read that again. And there's a sense of revival stirring. We covered that revival with confession of sin. In 9, they made another covenant uh, to keep the covenant in chapter 10 because they were bad at breaking promises. Not you all, but, you know, people back in Bible days. And 
in chapters 11 through 12 where we find ourselves today, they're repopulating the city and dedicating the wall. Wow. Do you notice the irony that it's God's holy city and yet it's broken down? It's supposed to be the most spectacular thing on earth and yet it looks so below ordinary and common. Can I tell you something? That's what much of the world sees when they look at us, the church. Like they say, you're God's people, but you're, you're not really. There's nothing that special about you. You're just a bunch of normal, ordinary people. Yeah, we are normal, ordinary people. But, but we know an extraordinary God who's doing an extraordinary work in us and through us. And it's the church that's blessed the world with hospitals and orphan care and benevolent work through all of the centuries. Nobody's outstripped us in that. And standing for the vulnerable and the voiceless, we, we, that's our job. And we've done it for centuries. Now, this morning, I want us to take a look at a few things that show up in chapter 11. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Some of you are going, good, a lot of names. Whole lot of names there. Been a lot of names in Nehemiah. It could have been called Nehemiah, the book of names, but it wasn't. So it's Nehemiah. But we're going to look at a few things that these normal, ordinary people with normal, ordinary jobs and problems do as they follow this extraordinary God. We're going to see how they surrender their lives to God's work. We're going to see how they shower their praise on God. We're going to see how they support God's mission with their gifts. All of this unfolds before us this morning. Verse 1 tells us that there was a draft. When you read that, did you think that? Take your Bibles. Uh, I don't think I put verse 1 up there this morning. I've got verse 2 queued up. But just take your Bibles. I told you to go there and look at Nehemiah 11. Grab that pew Bible if you need to. If you get to the Psalms, flip a few pages back from the Psalms. You'll find Job. You're getting real close to Nehemiah. Just keep going backwards a little bit from the Psalms. You'll get to Nehemiah chapter 11. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. I told you Jerusalem was not a destination city. Like, it was broken down. It was busted up. It was disgusting. The walls were just, just now repaired, but I mean, they weren't like they used to be. Pastor Norm brought our attention to that. Like, if the walls before were ten feet tall, They've been rebuilt, but they're maybe four and a half. Now, I'm just, I'm just giving you illustration. Point That's not an exact measurement. I'm just saying they're not as glorious as they used to be. But they're rebuilt. And so people, shockingly, aren't signing up to leave the comfort of their lives to go back and live in a busted-up city to, to work hard. Yeah? So they do a draft. We do these in, to get in schools today, lotteries, right? You put your name in a list, and there's only so many spots, and they're trying to figure out how do we do this fairly, and they draw names out of a hat, and maybe your kid gets into, I don't know, Harvard preschool. I don't know what you do a lottery for, but whatever you do. And so that, that's what's happening. They're drafting folks. Ashley and I were talking as we were thinking about this last night, and we talked about there's a difference when people are drafted to serve and when they voluntarily sign up to serve. Now, their service is still worthy of dignity and honor and respect, right? We're grateful for the service of uh, our men and women in the armed forces. But, but years ago, at certain wartime scenarios, there would, they would institute a draft. They would conscript people because they needed more soldiers. And there were some that say, look, you don't have to draft me. I'll sign up willingly. Look at verse 2. And that's the group of people that's here. Verse 2 in Nehemiah 
11 uh, says, And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, God's will was for all of them to be there. Some came willingly, some came unwillingly. Those who went willingly earned a place of honor and respect in the eyes of those around them. But to be a part of God's ordinary, or rather extraordinary plan and purpose, watch this, they had to be all in. Here's your first point this morning. They, they had to surrender their lives to God's plan. If you're taking notes this morning, there's your first one. If you're following along in the Bible app, it's there. If you'll just go to events, you should find Grace Covenant Church, and all the notes are there for you. But Nehemiah 11, 1 through 12, 26, that's a lot of scripture under that point. But it is. It's just the people surrendering to God's plan, saying, I'm all in. Verse 6 mentions 468 valiant men. That's very specific. Like, if an American's writing this, they'd say, about 500 men, right? Because we always round up because it sounds better. It's evangelistically speaking, we like to say. But uh, about 500 were valiant men. No, it's very specific. Now it's 467. Like you're wondering if there were 469 men standing there and then the writer goes down, mm -hmm, I see you, 468 valiant men. I see you, Joe. You stand over there. No, not Joe. I just said a name. Joe's a valiant man. Uh, Joel is mentioned as an overseer. 928 men of valor are mentioned. Don't worry, I'm not going to enumerate everything. Just some things that caught my attention through chapter 11. Judah was second in command. Families worked together to do the work of the house. A band of brothers had a distinction as mighty men of valor. That's a cool t-shirt, right? You got men of valor. You got men of honor, but we're the mighty men of valor. You know a pickup football game happened, and they won, right? That's how that works. And they were all going, can we do tag football? And they're like, no, this is tackle, baby. We're mighty men of valor. Like me and the sports, right? I try to work it in every week. A group of Levites, uh, they weren't asked to, I love this, the Levites who you know, normally handle the priestly things, they had the collars and the robes and probably walk like this through town, uh, they were given the job of overseeing the landscapers. So you got to love that. Everybody just did what needed to be done. Like people showed up and did the work. There was support staff for leaders. There were singers uh, singing, but also doing non-singing work. There were gatekeepers, keeping dakes. Mataniah was the leader of praise who gave thanks. There were priests, Levites, and their families. What's my point here? There's surrender of everybody. Everybody's all in. A bunch of normal, motley crew people are all in. Why? Because they believe God is worth it. They, they, they said, we're all in, we're surrendering because God is, is worth it. God's name is worthy, and it is. God's work is noble to commit to, and, and, and it is. Now, at the church where I was saved, my life radically transformed by the power of God. When, when you surrendered, when you said, and an invitation was given, and some of you can relate, I know some of your heritage, not everybody's, but when an invitation was given, said, who wants to surrender to, to the Lord today. Make a full surrender. You had to be careful because here's what that meant. Julie, you, you can relate. We've talked about some heritage things. That meant you were either coming up front to surrender to be a pastor or like a full-time worship leader or maybe singing in a southern gospel group that traveled in a bus or a traveling evangelist or revival preacher. That was it. Apparently in their Bible, that application side of that was very small. It was a pastor, an evangelist, or a professional singer. That was what full-time surrender looked like. Now listen, God give us some pastors out of Grace Covenant Church. I want to do it. I want some interns. I want to raise up some mighty men of valor who will preach the word of God. Amen? 
who'll go and plant churches for the glory of God. Hallelujah. And, and send, God sent them to dying churches to revitalize them and to rebuild with the word of God. I'd love to do that. That'd be amazing. God, give us some singers, some musicians that want to do it and be all in with it. Hallelujah. God, give us some folks who have the gift of evangelism and will go and, and equip others to do the work of evangelism and also be evangelists themselves. Amazing. But there's a whole lot more to do than that. Listen, the world isn't much changed by pulpits. The world is much changed by normal people who've surrendered to an extraordinary God who live out the gospel every day while they're at home raising their families, while they're in the marketplace buying and selling, while they are at school as a teenager who sold out for God, marching against the grain. There's so much more to full-time surrender than just vocational ministry. Yes, God does set people aside. I'm grateful for that. To, to be the leaders and to set the table. But, but my job is not to raise a church full of preachers. My job is to equip you in your normal, everyday life to reflect this extraordinary God so that it comes naturally. Wow. If you and I are going to live lives that point to our extraordinary God, the creator and ruler, we're going to need to live completely surrendered lives to him. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Great. What does that mean? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be men and women and boys and girls who are in the word and have the word in you because you have surrendered because God's worth it. You say, as for me, I'm going to follow after the Lord. The writer of Hebrews uses we and us language. I don't think it's too far of a reach to make this verse personal. It's okay to do that for an application, but that's not what the verse says. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we, say we, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, say us, and you better say it louder than you said we, say us. Thank you. Also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You're not in this alone. We're running together. A bunch of normal ordinary people who've been transformed by the power of God, still living normal, ordinary lives, but pointing to an extraordinary God. Running the race that God set before us. How do we do that? Well, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Say yes to Jesus, not just when you get saved. Say yes to Jesus every single day day of your life. That's what surrender looks like. Yes, Lord, no world. Yes, Lord, no self. Yes, Lord, to your will and to your way. When I say surrender, what, is, what image comes to mind for you? A white flag? Maybe hands upraised? Pause this image in your mind because this is great for the next verse. The next point this morning is these people showered praise on the Lord. You see what I did there? Hands of praise like I'm praising God. It's not just for holding my glasses, right? They showered praise on the Lord. 
in verses 27 through 43, at the dedication of the wall, verse 27 of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres. The whole time it was normal for this crew, watch this, to have workers and watchers. Do you remember this from our previous text? We talked about how some of them had a work tool in one hand and then a weapon in the other hand. And then there were some standing behind them who, like y'all know what, I'm, some of y'all know what I'm doing, but like they were standing behind like this, looking out, right? They were watchers, watchmen on the wall. They were just looking out. I doubt they were doing this with a spear, but it's, it's what I know. So they're doing this, right? And they're watching on the wall. They're, they're looking out. They had workers and watchers. And now God is reorienting the order. And he's saying, I know you've had workers. I know you've had watchers. Now we need worshipers. Now, here's the difference for us in New Testament. Ready? We're worshipers first. Before we're workers that are going to be worth anything to God. Before we're watchers that look out for the behalf of others. We need to be worshipers. And these people knew it was time to worship. They're transitioning to worshipers as a whole people. Not, well, he's a worshiper. She's a worshiper. No, we, us, we are going to worship. They have uh, been dedicated as a people, now they're going to dedicate the wall. Now, before the special service begins, you'll notice in verse 30 of chapter 12, we're already in chapter 12. See, I'm moving quickly this morning. The priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Everybody prepared themselves for this moment, this day. They purified themselves before the dedication service. Now, before I talk about the service for just a, a brief moment, I just want to say, what's our application from this? The Levites and the priests purify themselves? I don't have, uh, I wish uh, Isaac Paley was here. He'd appreciate the reference. But in Jerusalem, if you ever get to go to the, to the city, you will see there's still some mikvahs around the temple. Mikvahs were these, they look like baptismals, right? They were pools that people would go in to clean themselves before they would go into the temple. Not just the Levites, but just worshipers. What's the principle here? Right? What's the principle for us in 2022? That's great, Chad. Historic. You even gave us some archaeology. That's fantastic. My pot roast is going to burn in about an hour. What's, what you got for me? Here's what I got for you. Prepare for worship. Prepare for worship. This is different. You're not coming to a social activity or just something to do because it's Sunday to mark time. We've come together, the we, the us. To lavish our love and affection on this extraordinary God who's revealed himself to us by his word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the writers beheld his glory. They touched and saw. They told us. And Jesus said, hey, there are greater people coming after you that haven't seen and heard, but they're going to put their faith and trust in me. That's us. Don't come into the house of God flippantly, hoping to be impressed. Don't come in singing the songs of Zion as if they owe you something. Get a hold of those words. Let those words get a hold of you and sing to your maker, the ruler. I can't sing that good. It just requires a joyful noise. I've heard some of you. You can still do that. <laughs> they prepared for worship, and it was ornate in the Old Testament. We see that. I'm just asking you to give a thought. Give a care as you come into the house of God to worship our God together. 
Well, this word, worship order is kind of unique. They've had some unique worship orders. Three hours of reading, three hours of confession. Julia was nervous waiting on the email after I'd read those passages. And we're not changing up next Sunday for that, are we? Anyway, we've not, we've not modified to that. But here the leaders and singers were divided into two groups. Ezra led one group. Nehemiah led the, led the other. And you know who was out front? The choir. They got this big choir together. They split the choir in two. If they were independent Baptists, they probably had 90 altos and 10 tenors and five sopranos. No? Was that just my experience growing up? Okay, anyway. So they had so many altos, they split them all. So they got the choirs going ahead of them. And one group goes this way and the other group goes that way. And they sing and praise the whole way around the city. And then they get together at a gate at the city and have this incredible worship service together. Now, that's not a precise formula for a worship order, but, but here's the deal. It's worth noting there was form, they planned, it was orderly, it was reverent. And that checks a lot of boxes for a lot of people in this room. But I've got a box that makes some of you uncomfortable. It was loud. It was loud. I mean... You say, well, you're just saying that because we're not bringing smoke machines in. Y'all know me better than that. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying look at verse 43 with me for just a moment. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Do you know what that means in the original language? It means the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. They was loud, and people heard them. They didn't have amplification. They didn't need microphones. They got loud because they got together and these ordinary people began to praise this extraordinary God together. I'm not saying we get loud for loud's sake. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we try to compete. And I don't want to go to another pep rally that's called a church service where the worship leader's up there going, hey, they're louder than this at the Panthers game. Yeah, there's 50,000 people there. Like, I can't even... I was talking to my son at the game. We couldn't hear each other anything, right? You can't even communicate there. Listen to me. The worship of our God is not in competition with the noise of the world that lives for the moment. We're not trying to settle some kind of adrenaline fix the world needs. No, we're not. You can crank it up in the car if you want to. Crank up some Mary Mary and bounce the whole way home, right? Go for it. I'm with you. But when we come together, we've chosen to sing the songs of Zion that, that take us someplace deeply, richly into God's word. But that doesn't mean that you stand up there and sing like this. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures, what's the score? We've got lunch in 30 minutes. We can do better, can't we? In light of who he, this is Old Testament stuff. I'm not even getting into where they are in the covenant. This is Old Covenant. Christ has not shown up. The fullness of time has not come yet where the Lamb of God appeared to take away the sin of the world. These are folks trying to obey the rules and regulations of the priestly order, and they're excited about it. And they think God is worthy. They showered their praise on the Lord. Why? Because they called on him who's worthy to be praised. 
They were safe from their enemies. They praised the Lord. They sang to Him a new song. His praise was in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in His Maker, the psalmist said. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. If they had this kind of call of worship before Calvary, before our precious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was the Word, became flesh, without any sin, without any guile in his, might, and in his mouth, was walked outside the city after he had been flogged within inches of death, walked outside the city as truly man, but truly God, to be crucified on a cross for crimes he didn't commit. He was guilty of loving us in the first degree. If they can worship like that in the Old Testament before Christ, I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, if we might take our cues from the seated and glorified church in heaven. In Revelation 4, the 24 elders give a worship call. It's not just a casual reading of the text. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then the living creatures that are around them join with them, and they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open it with its seals, for you were slain, they're talking about Christ, and by your blood, Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every nation, from every language and people, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign forever and ever on the earth. And then all the saints, everybody there, join in, singing with a loud voice. You know what the word means in the original language? Loud voice. They sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And he hears every, John does, as he's writing this in Revelation, every creature in heaven and on earth and in the sea and all them singing, singing to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be all blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I don't know who you're going to take your cues from, from worship, but let's start with God's word. And bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Men and women and boys and girls who have surrendered their lives to follow God are men and women and boys and girls who will shower their praise on this God who is worthy. Finally, this morning, as we finish up the last part of the text, this sounds eerily familiar because it's like the last part of the text from last week. And some of you, when I preached that text from last week, like, oh, he's going to talk about money, but he's out of time, so he'll make it fast. I did, and here we are, last point again, and they talk about supporting God's mission. I can't ignore it. Let's look at what it says. They supported God's mission. These normal, ordinary people with normal jobs, all kinds of different walks of life, socioeconomic, some poor, some wealthy, all of them were all in and supported the work. Last week, we noted in chapter 10 how a part of the covenant marked them out as distinct because they gave generously. In verse 44 of chapter 12, uh, I'm going to put it on the screen, I think. Verse 44 of chapter 12, uh, you see that men were appointed to the storerooms where the contributions were. Okay, let's do some implicit things here. If men are going to a storeroom where contributions are, I, I've been to school for stuff like this. Ready? That means somebody had to give contributions. Right? That's deductive reasoning. Right? Wait, I should, have, I should have made that point like this. So the people were faithful. They had given generously, and, and that meant there were people 
over the administration of the gifts. And that was actually an act of worship. Listen, it takes money to do stuff. It took money in the Old Testament. It takes money to make stuff go. You say, well, I, I'm not very comfortable with that. Okay, well, next time you check out at Harris Teeter or Aldi, as they say, that'll be whatever it is. I don't know what your grocery bill is today. $22,000 when you go? I don't know what it is. But when you go and you check out and they say, that'll be this, you just go like, <laughs> Jesus paid it all. I'll come bring you a Bible when you're in jail. Uh, say that, send that on your Duke Energy bill the next time they send you one. Just write the blood on it and send it to them. I, actually, I don't know what will show up at your house, so maybe not do that. Right? And That's silly, right? But people say that about church stuff. They're like, well, the church doesn't need my money because God's going to supply me. Come on. It takes, it takes money to do things in local ministry. It takes money to equip and to, and to equip you for ministry. It takes money for us to fund international ministry. Even when overhead is low like ours is, it still is a necessity. But listen to me. It takes more than money to do ministry. You can have all the money in the world and no ministry happen. It takes normal, everyday people to show up and do something. To go out, and I don't mean just showing up at church and doing stuff. I mean like going out Monday through Friday and being the salt and light that God has called you to be. It takes people to do ministry. The work matters in verse 45. Not only does the work matter, but the way they worked matter. They prepared diligently for the work. In verse 46, they took their cue from Scripture. We try to do that here. We blow it sometimes. I don't know that we blow it, but we might miss it sometimes. I said to some folks that are three precious ladies in my office this morning as we were talking about baptism. Don't you love that? And I chatted with three precious young people this week by Zoom talking about baptism, the next baptism at church, going over the gospel, what baptism is, what it is. It's a glorious time. But we were talking, and I said, you know what? If you find, we, we want to do this. They were asking great questions about some other traditions about baptisms with, with, with babies or christenings or different things. And I just grabbed my Bible and I said, we, we want to take our cues from this. And if it's not in here, we don't want to create it. Now, that doesn't mean, I mean, give me a little, well, you, it doesn't say you've got to have wooden pews. Some of you just shouted on that because you want some padding down. I know. But, but I get all that. By normal means of grace, we do things. But when we're doing ordinances of the church, if there's a clear description, why would we do it differently, right? So what they did, they found from David's writings. This is what they were doing. They took their cues from Scripture. Imagine that. They weren't trying to innovate some new thing in worship ministry. They were just worshiping the worthy God the way that God said he wanted to be worshiped. That's what we try to do as Grace Covenant Church. It can happen and it can look different ways in other churches and sound differently. And it's wonderful, beautiful, and awesome. This is just the way we do it as a family. Worshiping the Lord. Verse 47, those who had been set apart to lead had their needs met as well because the people obeyed the Lord. God's extraordinary mission is accomplished when normal people like me and you trust and obey Him and we give our gifts to God. Time, talent, and treasure. We give our gifts freely to the Lord. We sing this a lot here and I like this song. Uh, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to me. Listen to some things we tell the Lord to take there. Take my moments, my days, my hands, my feet, my voice, my lips, my silver, my gold, my intellect, my power, my heart. I'm going to lay it all at your feet. Take my love. I pour at thy feet. Take myself 
and I will be ever only all for thee. While Julia transitions to the piano this morning, as we're about to have a moment of reflection to respond to the text, God's people in Nehemiah's day, at this point in the narrative, he says, because he knows chapter 13 is coming, God's people were saying yes to the Lord. They were all in. They wanted, to, they wanted to do God's work God's way, and it required them surrendering their lives. They, they, they were showering their praise on God, and, and they were supporting God's mission. And, and they were so joyful in their work that it could be heard from miles away. Some of you may be faithful, but are you joyful? What's the recipe for joy? The old Sunday school adage, do you remember it? Jesus first, then others, then you. If your time is consumed navel-gazing about all the things you don't have and how life's not going your way, and if I only knew the troubles, nobody knows the troubles. Yeah, Jesus does know, and he said, be joyful. I don't like that preacher. Send all complaints to Pastor D at Grace. Sorry. What does surrendering our life look like today? What does it mean for us to surrender our life? If we take these three points and make them something measurable and applicable for us this week, what does surrendering our life look like? Well, I asked this of a friend of mine who's been encouraging about 20 pastors since he retired from pulpit ministry. He checks on us almost every week, asks us some hard questions, and I was going to go minister to some pastors at a pastor's breakfast in Virginia last year, and I said, hey, what's the one thing you'd say to them? And without hesitation, he said, this is how we need to start our morning. We start by worshiping God. Not just a, a normal Bible reading, not just kind of a checking off a devotional list, but take a moment and just bask in his goodness. He said, thank you, Lord. Wow, what a good God you are. Worship the Lord. Die to self. What does that mean? Use confessional prayers. There's some in the Bible. You can get a, conf a confessional prayer book if you need to, but just... Acknowledge your weaknesses that get in the way of what God wants you to do and ask the Lord, here you go, to make less of you today. Boy, that kind of is a grenade in the self-esteem movement, but that's biblical. Lord, make less of me and more of you today. He said, surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that sounds really good, but he said, here's the practical thing. Give the Holy Spirit keys to your decision-making, to your thought life, to your conversations, to your spending, to everything. Give God the keys and let him drive. And lastly, he said, ask the Lord to give you joy in everything. You say, what does surrender look like? Here you go. That works. That's a good way to start your day so that you can walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling the Lord's put on you. Well, we said surrendering, and then we said showering our praise on the Lord. You know, here's a way to know if you're showering your praise on the Lord. Are you grateful or grumpy you know who you are now some of you i saw just maybe want to tap your neighbor and say hey honey he's talking to you i'm talking to you are you grateful or are you grumpy you, you, if you're tired of being grumpy because the rest of us kind of are if you're tired of being grumpy and want to be a more grateful person it, it, it's simple that's in your control you can be locked up in a prison cell somewhere and the joy of the Lord still be your strength. Why? Because your focus changes. 
You think about the things that you're grateful for, you're thankful for. If you need this exercise, it helped me at a season in my life. I started my day before I looked at my email, before I planned out my day, I would write down three things I was grateful for. Now listen, some days it was a stretch. I'd have to think like, I'm thankful I'm alive, I guess. We all have days like that. I'm thankful it's not worse. We all have days like that. But it's something to be thankful for. I'm thankful a week ago I had a good week. Is that just me? Any of y'all like... We all have days like that where it's not great, but there's always something to be thankful for. And then turn that into a prayer and say, God, thank you for this. That'll set the tone of your day. I believe it'll help change the tone of your day for a day of praise and gratefulness instead of grumpiness. Finally, um, that last one, supporting God's mission. That looks differently for different people in the room. I'll be really brief with this. For some of you, it means to keep on doing what you're doing. You're faithful. You're generous. At times, you're sacrificial. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being advanced all around the globe to our neighbors and the nations as a result of your work. Thank you. Thank you for that. Keep up the great work. Worship God as you do it. Do it with a joyful heart. For others, it means stepping toward faithfulness. You are generous when you give, and, and we are certainly grateful for that. You're generous that one time you helped us with that one meal 22 years ago. Thank you. We made a plaque. It's awesome. But you know, there's, there's still some stuff to do. No, it just means, for some of us, it means asking the Lord to help us to be more disciplined in our support of God's mission. For some of you, you're regular and faithful, but you're giving God the little bit that's left over instead of being generous like it's an act of worship. Now, I didn't come up with this, but it's a good quote. It's gonna sting a little bit, so just play it lightheartedly for me, if you will. Oh, not that quote. That's a spiritual quote. I'll get to that one in a minute. I thought I'd finish with a nice one. This one, he says, hey, most people tip 10 to 15% even for bad service. How bad has God's service been to you that you won't? I'll just move on. Okay. It's easy for many of us to have goals for higher standards of living and never think about our standard of giving. That's all I'm saying. Supporting God's mission is a part of our act of worship, and we get to do it with joy because of who God is. This morning, as we go to a time of reflection and prayer, I want to close with this quote from Dr. Ray Rhodes. He says, It's truly extraordinary when an ordinary Christian commits to an ordinary church that's committed to the ordinary means of grace. It's not as romantic as parachurch ministries, exciting as big crusades. It's enjoyable as listening to your favorite speaker on a podcast. But it is the will of God. A faithful church is for your sanctification. Your participation is for the good of others and the glory of God. How will you surrender, shower your praise, and support God's mission this week differently as a result of God's work? Let's pray. Lord, in a culture that seems to want to normalize everything that is abnormal, I want to stand with the Bible open this morning and remind God's people of what a normal Christian looks like. It's one that is totally sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one that regularly showers 
preys upon you because you are worth it. And it's one that invests the good gifts that you've given them, whether many or few. Their talents, the incredible craftsmanship and talent in this place. Lord, they invest them in your mission because you're worthy. Lord, we love you and we commit our lives afresh to you today. Use us, spend us for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.